Well, thank you, kids, for uh, decorating our tree for us, both of our trees. Looks good. All right, I'm going to take up up where the kids left off. Today we're going to be talking about worshiping Jesus. We're going to talk about the motive behind the gifts. Uh, We're going to focus our our text today on the story of the Magi in Matthew chapter 2. So turn there or look up on the screen in front of you if you don't have a paper Bible to turn in. Um, This has been a challenging couple of weeks for me. Uh, for us, for Talath and I, as we've been trying to pray through our transition and, and what it's going to mean for us. And so one of the things that the Lord has been speaking to us about that this really opened up is just the difference between, uh, the difference in our motives for, uh, for our giving, giving of our time, giving of our energy, giving of our agendas, you know, releasing those things, uh, giving of our, our, of our money, uh, all our possessions, Motive behind that. And I just think it's, it's neat that this story falls uh, where it does at the end of the year in the last uh, sermon of the year, really. Because I think it sums up for us what we've been experiencing in the book of Acts since the beginning of this year. What we've, what we've seen in the book of Acts is that is we've seen what happened. We see the difference between years and years of disobedience and reluctant at best obedience to God from Israel in all the Old Testament stories. Reluctant at best uh, obedience and partial obedience. We see that throughout the Old Testament. And then when, when Christ comes, when the Holy Spirit comes and, and fills this church in its infancy, these are brand new believers who all of a sudden have a major transformation that happens. And I, th- I think a lot of times what we tend to do is we look at the book of Acts and we look at the, at the things that the people were doing and we study those things and we, we in, in, a, in a typical message, maybe in a typical church, what we might do is say, here's what Christians do. And so let's continue to do, let's do all these things that they did in the book of Acts. Now we have kind of done that, but what we've tried to keep as a for, at the forefront of the messages this year has been the motive behind what we do. Why were they doing these things? They were not doing it because they grew up in the church and they had, uh, had people teaching them all of their lives how they're supposed to live for God. And even the things that they were given to do as a religious duty for God in the Old Testament, uh, the ones that did grow up in that, the Jewish people that grew up in that, those things had no longer had meaning to them. Uh, and the things that they were doing in the Old Testament, they weren't doing anymore after the Holy Spirit came. But instead, what all the prophets spoke about, particularly, I I, I love the story of Ezekiel, or or Ezekiel's prophecy in Ezekiel 36. What he prophesied is what happened. There was a change that happened on the inside. It was as if, and this is the illustration Ezekiel uses, as if God reached down and, and washed us clean with the blood of Christ so that all of our sins past were gone, all of our self-righteousness past was gone all of our failures to keep the law all of our failures in motives all of that was gone he washed us clean with pure water the blood of christ 
and that he, took, he reached into our hearts and took out the, the heart of stone that just couldn't obey Christ, that, that always did things from the wrong motive, that always tried to be good enough and impress God and never could, took out, of our, heart, out our heart of stone, hearts that could never feel anything toward God consistently. And he throws that away and he gives us a heart of flesh, a new heart, and he puts his spirit in us. And he does that so that we would obey his laws and decrees and we could be his people and he could be our God. And so that's what happens in the book of Acts. That, that prophecy culminates when the Holy Spirit comes and fills every man. And so a people that had never had any training in religious activity at all or religion at all were now living radically different lives. And so rather than us focusing our attention on what they were doing, We've tried to stay focused on the why behind the what. That if you do surrender your life to this Holy Spirit that fills us, if, if we do allow the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts and change our hearts, that our actions absolutely, without a doubt, will be, ch- be changed, literally transformed. That our old ways will be passed away and all things become new. But the focus this year has been that that has to happen on the inside. In order for it to be an act of worship and be true worship, something has to happen on the inside. God was no longer pleased with their acts of worship after the Holy Spirit came. Yeah, as a matter of fact, he, he got tired of, of Israel just going through the motions when there was no heart involved in the Old Testament. He says, I'm tired of your sacrifices. I want your obedience. I want you to walk with me and to know me through obedience. And so we see that in the story today. And I want to focus on that today as we look at the lives of these wise men who probably were not, may have been, but probably were not believers. They came from the east, probably from Persia or uh, Babylonian area. And and so they probably didn't didn't have a relationship with God, although they, I believe, had heard about him from the prophecies of some of his prophets. And we'll talk about that in the message. But that they came with passionate hearts, with worshipful hearts, that there were some things that happened in the story of the Magi and, their, and, and God moving and working in their lives that we can learn what true worship is all about. So five things today about worshiping Jesus that I think we learned from the Magi. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, it says this. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them, Where was the Christ to be born? They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I may too come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen which it, when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, 
And they fell down and worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Worshiping Jesus, true worship. What is true worship? I think we see it clearly in this story, and I want to make some points and have some application for us as we think about this during the Christmas season. First of all, according to this story, true worship begins when God reveals himself through our experiences in the world, in the world that he created, right? True worship begins when we, and when God reveals himself to us through our experiences in the world, the planets and stars. They didn't have to be convinced to worship God, right? They were worshiping. When, when Christ was born, the planets rearranged, the stars changed. There were celestial events that happened to announce the coming of Christ. They were already worshiping. In Luke chapter 19, verses 37 to 40, it says uh, Jesus was drawing near the Mount of Olives toward the end of his life with his disciples. And as he was drawing near <clears throat> already uh, on the way down to the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The Pharisees didn't like it. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. God intended for us to be blown away uh, by his creation. And the creation itself worships God when man doesn't. Creation was intended to lead us to God. There's no doubt about it. Uh, in, in this text, it can be translated, that wise men can be translated as men of wisdom who studied the stars in a simple translation. They were men of wisdom. They had wisdom and they studied the stars and were seen as, as wise men because of that. And this was a great start. Studying the stars is something that, that everybody eventually, stars and planets, most of us have been enamored at some point by the beauty that we see at night when we walk out uh, under the stars, especially on a clear night, we see all the stars lit up and, and the planets, and it reminds us of God. It reminds us of our smallness and of his bigness. But even before you ever have a relationship with God, um, the, the planets and stars, the celestial events that we see uh, cause us to think about God. That was meant to be. That's a good start. And the psalmist in chapter 19 of Psalm, uh, verse 1 said, the heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. So seeing God's work in the, in the world is, is meant by God. He intends for us to be blown away, literally, by his creation. But it's only a beginning. God intended for his creation, the creation that, he, that we see in the world, to lead us to a relationship with him, to lead us to seek the creator, not to be... Not to make the, the creation our God, but to seek the creator. In Romans chapter 1, Paul says this in verse 20 uh, through 23. He says, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things which have been made. And so they are without excuse, talking about men. We are without excuse for although they knew God, knew him by what they saw in creation. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. 
but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So although the Magi had a good start in recognizing the beauty and the majesty of the creation, a shift needed to happen for these men. They had a great start. They were fascinated with the the stars and the planets. But without help, uh, they they would probably continue to, they would take those stars like the culture did of of their day, take those planets and begin to worship them. It was common in their culture for them to, to uh, it, because of their awe of, of the creation, to even name their gods after the planets. Most of you have heard of those. But they needed to change that or shift that. A shift needed to happen in their hearts. Even though they lived among the people that worshipped the stars and the planets, they were, and they, even though they were probably destined, if no, there was no intervention, to, make the, to follow that cultural norm, Something had to happen. And then, so we see in this story the next aspect of true worship. So number one, true worship begins with God seeking us. Number two, true worship begins when God comes to us where we are and reveals himself. These magi needed God to shift their attention from what he created to the person behind the creation. And he brought, so he brought truth to them that would guide them ultimately to the Savior. There's a lot of speculation about how the Magi, or how the truth came to the Magi. Uh, but I, I was most blown away and by this idea or thought that they actually came to Jerusalem asking, where is he, the king of the Jews? Where we've seen his star. And there had to be some kind of recognition, some kind of truth that they had, probably from the prophets, maybe from Daniel, who uh, spent some time in Babylon. In Daniel chapter 2, for instance, Daniel spoke this in one of, well, it says this about Daniel. You know, Daniel was, was over the wise men of Babylon. In Jan- Daniel chapter 2, verses 47 and 48, it says, The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is the God of gods. And Lord of kings and revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. So Daniel was over all the wise men of Babylon. Surely he was spreading these prophecies. We know that that Daniel was a prophet and the things that he spoke were of things to come. Daniel prophesied about the anointed prince that would come into Jerusalem. In chapter 9 of Daniel, we, we see a portion of this prophecy. In verses 24 and 25, 70 weeks are decreed about your people in your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of the anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. The combination, I believe, of of these magi's study of the stars to see the majesty of God and and then this anticipation of a 
a holy prince, an anointed prince that would come to Jerusalem is what brought them to Jesus and brought them there with some knowledge that there would be a king of the Jews that would be born. And there was other kinds of speculations also surely about uh, what the Magi saw in the stars and what they expected when they saw this particular uh, star that was different from anything they'd seen before. That there were some things in their culture and, uh, and among the Magi that said that if an event like that would happen, that a king was being born, all kinds of things in the commentaries about that. But I think what's significant for us is this point, that God came to them and brought truth to them that caused this shift to happen from, from, the, from, these, uh, from just admiring the creation of God to connecting the, the beauty of that creation to the creator. Number three, true worship consumes time and agendas. They haven't even seen Jesus yet. And they dropped everything to go find this king. They hadn't even seen him, but they dropped everything. They didn't know him, but they dropped everything to find this king. They traveled for months in pursuit of Christ. Jesus was probably a year old, give or take a few weeks uh, or months. So they, but they traveled for months to see him. The, the distance from Persia to Jerusalem was 1,400 miles. And their worship, however, just the possibility of the creator of the universe being found in this manger bed, that the king of the universe would be found in this manger bed, that this prophecy would be fulfilled, caused them to drop everything. Whatever it is they did in the years previous was all of a sudden had no meaning to them. It consumed their time and their agendas. And I was looking at that today. You know, there's a number of things that I think we can make application just from these three points. Just about the fact that, you know, we, we love the things that God creates. And we could take it, we, certainly we, we all, again, have had experiences where we've seen how majestic the heavens are at different times of year and, and different nights when we see how clear it is. Uh, you know, Sam's coming back from Alaska today, the northern lights. If you've never seen the northern lights, it's amazing to see that, those uh, celestial events that happen. But also in our lives, we have, you know, we have people that God brings into our lives that, that we, we, we know that, that they were created by God and they represent God and they are showing the character of God in their life and, and, they, and they're beautiful people and they're people that we're enamored by that God has created. We also you know, look at the things that God has put into our world, other things that he's put into our world. We're excited about that. We look at the churches that God's created. Not the buildings, but the people. We, we come into this church week after week and, and get, go to our life groups week after week to our small home churches. And we, we, we get with people who think like we think and we see the beauty of God there too. And, and for some of us and for many, many Christians, I believe, today, what we see is a, a fixation really with the things that God created. It might not be images like, like he talked about in the passage that we read earlier in Romans. It may not be images that they've created out of wood and stone and gold. But we have our own images, things that God gave us. God created the church. And, and we're in a place right now, I believe, the church as a whole where we spend more time worshiping the thing that God created than we do the one that created the thing. 
What I love about our gathering place and the stage that we're in right now, really, is that we're, we're trying to make sense of what's the difference between the beauty of what God's created and the person behind the creation. And we're all guilty of that to some degree. But true worship, true worship makes that shift from, from worshiping the things that God created to worshiping him. And so when we start from our hearts seeing the value of the creator, when we start seeing the value of God as being so much better than doing church or so much better than being in relationships. And, you know, not that those things are not included in it, but that he himself is so much bigger and better than all of that, so much bigger than our finances and our possessions. When that shift starts to happen in our hearts, that's true worship. And it creates, it consumes us. You know, I, I can only speak of my own experiences, but I've shared with most of you personally at some time or another how God has shifted my heart where I, you know, my worship was so centered around the things he created and, and how God is changing that to the point that I don't, even, I don't even want these things anymore unless they're going to be a way to in, enhance my worship of God. And I think many of you are in the same place. We want God. We know him. We want to shift, make that shift from worshiping the things that he created to worshiping him. And then whatever he creates through that will be about him. It will only enhance our worship. One of those things that happens is God consumes our time and our agenda. And I want to ask you this morning to just consider that. If we were to walk with you through your daily life, what would we see about your worship? If we were to evaluate the way you spend your time, for instance, I used to take a rope and separate it into 365 uh, inches, you know, and put a line at every inch. I used to have a rope. I didn't, I've only done it twice. But and I would take that rope and spread, spread, stretch it out and it would show just the, the portions of that rope or the portions of our time that we consume Sleeping, working, eating, watching TV or entertaining ourselves. And this, the sad part of that story is always that at the very end of it is the time that we actually dedicate, and I know this is not our whole walk with God, and I certainly don't believe that, but that there's actually a small, small, tiny portion of that rope that was dedicated to, the, to God. Now, I'm not asking you to necessarily spend more time. I don't think that that's always a representation of your love for God. But when our heart is for God, the whole rope is his. And really, his, it's his agenda. It's his time. Every moment of our day is his, is his moment. And, and, and at times, God's going to stretch us, and our worship will show up when God challenges the way that we spend our time. When God comes in and he wants some of our time, for he's trying to grab our attention to minister to somebody rather than using our time for ourselves, or, or grab some of our time to spend some time alone with him instead of going and working some extra hours and making some extra money. We all have those challenges. Or making a shift in the agenda that we have for our life. You know, we've been challenged, life and I've been challenged over the last month, really, in a strong way, and I'm thankful that we had, our, had the time that we had in Orlando to to sit on the balcony every morning for hours and to, to ask the Lord about his desire for our life, 
to get this solid in our hearts that, that God is calling us to do this ministry and not to worry about any other agenda, any other schedule, but just to submit ourselves to him, to walk in his will and that he would take care of the rest. And he said it over and over and over again. And we are coming to the place to trust in that. But we need to, God, God true worship is going to consume our time and our gym. It's not what we do on Sunday morning. True worship is not something you can contain. True worship takes over our lives, and it does for these men. They hadn't even seen Jesus yet. They dropped everything, and it took a year or so of their life away from them. Fourth thing, true worship is not hindered by people of influence. Once we've made a decision in our hearts, and our hearts have been grasped by God, and we are going after him, there's not any people of influence that can affect that. When the Magi finally make it to Jerusalem, they come to Herod and they ask Herod the question, and Herod certainly is a man of influence. Herod was threatened by the new king, and he would have had them bring back a report of where that new king was so that later on, as we know, he would try to, to kill this king. And they weren't influenced by that. They went back another way, in fact. They come to the religious people, and the religious people were not worshiping Jesus. They weren't even concerned about finding him. They, weren't con- they, they didn't even believe that, Jesus, that the Messiah had been born yet, but they gave a right answer. They had the right answer, but they didn't worship him. But they were people of influence. And they quoted the scripture out of Micah chapter 5, verse 2, where he says, But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, for you shall... Come forth for me, one who is from, uh, for you sh- from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from old and from ancient days. And so we have re- religious people who will reject Christ, who will rise up against him, who ultimately will crucify him. And they are people of power. Herod, religious, uh, Herod who represents pagan leadership and the pagan lifestyle and a political leader, a powerful leader, and the religious leaders of his day who represent uh, the, the spiritual, uh, spirituality of the culture are both not looking for Christ. But nothing would deter these magi from going to him. They get the truth, and off they go. And I think for us also, at times it's, it's, we're looking around us to see if we're worshiping right. We're looking around us to see if we're getting the approval of the right people. People in power, people with prestige, people who make us look good, or uh, our people in the church, people, religious people, people that we've, in the religion that we've held to all of our, all of our lives, maybe. We're looking even to our, own, to our own parents who might be very spiritual or religious, but, they, they, but they're not going after Christ. They're not pursuing him. They're not after the creator. And so we can't be hindered. True worship doesn't allow people of power to hinder their worship. And then finally, number five, true worship involves giving the best, the best of our possessions. Now there's hidden meanings behind the gifts. There's all kinds of great, by the way, I recommend you do some study of these, of the gifts of the Magi. There's a lot that goes on there. Uh, these gifts that they brought, most common is gold for a king, myrrh uh, for deity and frankincense that, points to the death of Christ 
the anointing of his body. But the worship aspect that we're going to focus on today that I want to just challenge you with before we go is, and I think is the main focus of this text, is that they're worshiping him by bringing the best that they have, the best of their possessions. Listen, Jesus didn't need anything. This is God's son. We've been trying to stay focused on that from the beginning of the advent. That he's, he was in heaven with God. He stepped out of heaven. All of his needs are provided for. And he certainly doesn't want us to think that we need anything else other than the Father. He didn't need anything, but these, these magi brought him the best that they had. So they didn't bring it because he needed it. They didn't bring it because they were trying to get something from the baby. They didn't drop it off at the one-year-old's house. You know, one-year-old Jesus says, hey, listen, can you do something for us? You know. There was a, they didn't bring it with some ulterior motive to gain, gain something from him. They brought it out of true worship. They were just wanting to express their love for God, their recognition of, of his power, of him being creator, of him being God, their commitment to him, their surrendering of their lives to him. They brought the best that they had before him. And I think we need a challenge there. I needed a challenge there this past week. I was, our week before last, as we were uh, just praying and asking the Lord again about this transition for us, one of the things that, uh, that I read was uh, in uh, Spurgeon's devotional one morning. God really spoke through it. And he was talking about uh, the, the Ishmael and, uh, I mean, about the two sons. Um, it's written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and the other by a free woman. And he's saying that Paul was, what Paul was dealing with in, the, in that passage was the, the difference between, the relation between the natural and the spiritual. And Ishmael represented the natural and, and uh, Isaac represented the spiritual. So there was a free woman and a bond woman. And the natural, he says, can be turned into the spiritual only through sacrifice. Without this, a person will live a divided life. He says, God did not demand it. It's not God's perfect will, but it's his permissive will. God's perfect will was for the natural to be changed into the spiritual through obedience. He says, sin is what made it necessary for the natural to be sacrificed. Abraham had to offer up Ishmael before he could offer up Isaac. And we, we're trying to make, many of us are trying to make spiritual sacrifices to God. We're trying to, to say, oh, I'm going to be more spiritual. I'm going to be more committed to God. But we're not, we're not committing the natural to God. There's something that's missing in our hearts. There's something missing in our worship. And it's, it's, a, it's a love for God that says, no matter what, my possessions are yours. We've seen it in passage after passage in the, stu- in the study of Acts. That what happens is the the love for God and their experience of the Holy Spirit and their, their growing love and commitment to the Holy Spirit and, and his work in their lives was, was leading them to a point where they were willing to give, sacrifice everything, where even their possessions were being sold and given to each other in the, in the family of God because those people had need. I need that. You need that. We need to be growing in our love for God. And, and if you want to find a check to see how, 
how well you're growing. I would say probably for all of us, the, the biggest check for us is just to say, well, check is the question, right? Is your checkbook, you know, what are you doing with your possessions and your money? We can look at our time, we can look at our agenda, but we can also look at what are we doing with our money and our, and our possessions? Are we really committing those to Christ? And, you know, I'm not saying go, go out and do that. In fact, I'm, I'm not saying that. Don't hear me saying that. What I'm saying is we need to check our worship to see if it's true. Our worship includes our giving. You know, sometimes people will say, well, I'm going be to be stronger this year, and this is a time of year when everybody makes their resolution, their, their new commitment to do more for God. And in doing more for God, what we usually do is we say, well, I'm going to pray more. I'm going to go to church more. I'm going to go to life group more. I'm going to do something spiritual. But there's something natural that needs to be sacrificed first. How many, how many of you have, not raise your hands, it's rhetorical, but contemplative, hopefully, for you. But how many of you have asked God, do I need to increase my giving? Do I need to increase what I'm giving to, to the work of God? Do I need to decrease what I'm spending so that I can increase what I'm giving? You know, a heart of worship ultimately means that something else in our life needs to be dethroned in order for our worship to be true. And for me, I can tell you, I've struggled with that all my life. I believe in the provision of God. I've had multiple experiences. My wife and I sat on the balcony and considered what are we going to do to take care of ourselves financially? And God just reminded us he's never, not one time, left us in need. He has a storehouse full. And we need to forget about the natural. We need to decrease in the natural and sacrifice the natural in order to make our worship true. So I don't know where you are today in your worship, but I would say, listen, God has been faithful. God went to these magi. He went to them to show them how to worship. He went to them where they were and met them and revealed himself through the experiences, their experiences of things that he created. The world that was already worshiping God. When they saw what they worshiped, worshiping God, their lives were transformed. And true worship always begins when God reveals himself through our experiences in the world. I would say, if, it get, if, you, if you get anything out of this message today, begin there. Begin having more experiences with God in the world. Begin looking and open your eyes to the reality of God around you, the things that he's leading you to do and the things that he's showing you in the world around you. Show, let him show himself to you in the world. Number two, true worship begins when God comes to us where we are and reveals himself. He's gonna come to you to do that. Just open your eyes to see it. You don't have to find him. He's coming to you. Number three, true worship consumes time and agendas. Evaluate yours. Number four, true worship is not hindered by people of influence. Remove that out of your life. And number five, true worship involves giving the best of our possessions. Let's pray. Father, thank you for coming, for coming, showing yourself to us, not only to the shepherds and the magi, but God, for coming to us, each one of us, and giving us our own experiences with you in this 
in this world where we could see you and know you and be overwhelmed by the reality of your, not only your presence, but your work and your, the fact that you're seeking us. Thank you for letting us see that. God, we have all responded to that. Father, I pray that you would continue to make our worship true through more revelations of yourself in our life. That we would open our eyes to see how you are all around us and see the, the beauty of your creation, not just the created world, but God, the, the things that you create in our lives and the people that you've created that you bring into our lives and the church that you've given us that you've created. Father, all that you create, help us to recognize that. But God, I pray for those things that are, are rivals to true worship, God, whether it be our time, our agenda, our control of those things, our possessions, our money. God, if there's anything that rivals our worship, then I pray, God, that you would just show yourself to us in a way that consumes that. Father, let our worship be true as we see you. Let it take effect in the way that we operate our lives and let people see, Lord, how much we worship you. I pray that you would take our whole lives, God, that we would find ourselves progressively surrendering all of our lives to you. For one reason, one reason only, is because we recognize who you revealed to yourself to be. God of the universe, who loves us and cares for us. Remind us of these things during this Christmas season, God, as we contemplate the greatest gift you ever gave, the gift of your son. In Jesus' name, amen.